Let me invite you to turn to Hebrews. If you're new to the Bible, uh, you can get a phone app and, uh, and it'll just look up Hebrews for you. But if you would rather just look up the book in the paper Bible there in front of you, Hebrews is all the way to the right, almost to the very end of the Bible. So if you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. You need to go backward about six little books and uh, you'll see Hebrews right before the book of James. Uh, So this morning we kick off the sermon series that will work through the next three months. Uh, We typically take a book of the Bible and preach through that expositorily, expositionally, I think that's how you say that, Uh, expositionally. We feel like that's the greatest way to nurture health and growth in the church is to take one book of the Bible and to preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, uh, through that. And so if you're new to Ridgeline, we typically take uh, 80% of the sermons are uh, exegetical sermons. That is that we take the text and, uh, and we preach what the text says, not what, uh, what I think the text says or what uh, some topic based on it. And then 20% of the time, I typically will take a topic and work through it like marriage or family or parenting or uh, some other topic that, uh, that is relevant to our lives right now. But for the most part, we'll get in the book and we'll stay there. Uh, this year, we've worked through the book of 1 Peter. We worked through Esther. Uh, we worked through a selection of the Gospels. And so now we start Hebrews. And we'll be in Hebrews until uh, September or October. And then after that, we'll move on to the book of Nehemiah. And so we'll be in that for the rest of the year, uh, leading us into the Christmas season. I say all that just so that you can already be pre-reading and you'll know that uh, for the next few months we're going to be digesting the book of Hebrews. Now Hebrews is hard. Right? How many of you have read Hebrews? Uh, for the last few months I've been, I, you know, it feels like this has been an announcement. I've teased this series for a long time and I took an extra month to prepare because it's a difficult book. I've been receiving text messages from many of you asking, what does this mean? And what's this all about? And why does he say this? And what are all these Old Testament quotes? And and what am I supposed to do with all this? And so Hebrews is a difficult book, but I'm going to tell you a secret about how you can understand the book of Hebrews. And so I'll get to that in just a few minutes. Uh, But Hebrews is where we're going to be for a while. And so this morning, I just basically want to do some introductory material and sort of help us get a big picture of what the book is all about. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what this is, uh, what this is all about. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 32 uh, through the end of that chapter through 39. It's not uh, usual that you start a book in chapter 10. But I'm not a usual guy, and you should know that by now, and so that's okay. Uh, But we're starting in 1032 because this is not a normal epistle. An epistle is just a letter, right? Uh, You're familiar with the 27 books of the New Testament, and most of the 27 books of the New Testament are called epistles, right? They're just a letter. Who wrote most of those letters? Paul, that's right. Good job. Paul wrote most of those letters. And when Paul wrote a letter, the normal way he started a letter was, I, Paul, write this letter to you, the Ephesians, and grace and peace, and, uh, and Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God the Father, he will say that, or he'll talk to the Romans, or he'll talk to the Galatians, or to the Colossians, or the Philippians. All of those were just locations, right? The Philippians lived in? Philippi. The Colossians lived in... I just like to hear you try to say (laughs) Greek words that uh, 
Yeah, Colossae, right? And, uh, and the Ephesians were from? Ephesus and the Corinthians were from all right so that's now you know you're a, you're a Bible scholar this morning you already understand that the names of the New Testament books were just letters written to small groups of people meeting in homes in living rooms uh, in small businesses and basements and just different areas some of them would meet in outdoor places but they were just letters written to people well, Hebrews is totally different. You'd notice if we started at Hebrews 1.1 that it doesn't have an author. It doesn't say, I so-and-so write this to you here. It's not that kind of a letter. It's a letter to a specific group of people, but, but we don't know who wrote it. We have some clues about who wrote it. In chapter 2, he says, what we heard from the apostles, we write to you. And so... This is written not by someone who was around Jesus, but by somebody who was around the apostles and heard the gospel from the apostles. So this changes the pool of who it could be. Paul considered himself an apostle. Paul titled all of his letters and and signed all of them, even if he wrote through an amanuensis, which is just a fancy name for secretary who wrote things down that I was saying. Uh, Paul typically told us who he was. This person doesn't tell us, so it's not written by Paul. Now, there are a few suggestions of who it could have been written by, and you may or may not care about any of this, but but it's important to know who wrote stuff. And so uh, it, it could have been written by a guy named Apollos, right? Do you remember who Apollos was? Apollos was the the person that Priscilla and Aquila met in Ephesus. And when he came and he started, he was a bold speaker and he was a great speaker. And he spoke so well that, uh, that at one point Paul said, we're sending the brother who is famous among all the other churches for preaching the gospel. Uh, in Corinthians, there was a whole group of people who followed Apollos, right? They said, uh, Peter, Paul was getting on to them. He said, uh, some of you say, I follow Peter. And some of you say, I follow Paul. And some of you say, I follow Apollos. So Apollos was an extremely well-known brother in the, in the uh, expanding church. It's a very influential part. It could have been written by him. It could have been written by Barnabas. You know who Barnabas was? Barnabas was one of Paul's first missionary traveling companions. It could have been written by Barnabas. There's no record that Barnabas spent time with Jesus, but there's a plenty of record that he spent time with the apostles. It could have been written by Priscilla and Aquila, or it just could have been not written by um, someone that we know of. And so the basic understanding is that the Holy Spirit spoke these words for our benefit. And that's the ultimate author of Scripture, isn't it? Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that that all Scripture is what? It's it's breathed out by God. That the Holy Spirit carried prophets along as as they wrote. That's what Peter writes. That that the Holy Spirit um, gives men and women inspiration that they may write the words of truth. And so we understand that whoever the human author is, we know that the divine author has something to say about the book of Hebrews. It's been an accepted book in the canon Not canon like you shoot a canon, but canon, C-A-N-O-N. The canon is the accepted group of books of the Bible. And so Hebrews has never really been disputed when it comes to the book of, of, uh, uh, of Hebrews. It's never really been disputed as a book of the Bible, as a, as a authentic, trustworthy book. What about the date? 
I'm trying to get all the boring information out early, so if you're, uh, if you're dozing off, just hang with me. All right, I'm, uh, I'm getting to a point here. Uh, the date, we know that there were still temple sacrifices happening. In Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, he describes the priesthood as though it were currently happening. Why is that significant? Because what happened in 70 A.D.? temple was destroyed, right? The temple was destroyed. The Jews had rebelled and they had um, basically rebelled against the Roman government. And so to quell the rebellion and to finally put down this rebellious group of people, they brought in two legions, that is 2,000 soldiers to dismantle the temple brick by brick. And they completely removed it and there has never been a temple since. That happened in 70. And so Hebrews must have been written before that. It must have been written between the period when Jesus died around 33 A.D. to the point of 70 A.D., that 40-year period. It must have been written there, but it must have been written a little bit later. So not immediately after Jesus died, because Hebrews tells us that uh, he, the pastor writing this book of Hebrews, he says that by this time you should have been more mature, but you still need us to go over the elementary things. So there was a period of time that had passed, a period of time that would have given them um, time for the apostles, the missionary apostles to go out and reach them, for them to be established as a community, and for them to grow a little bit in their faith, but not to maturity. So we're going to say it's written around 60, for those of you who care. Uh, 60 is about the time that it was written. And it is a difficult book, but I want to tell you the secret to how you can understand it. The secret to how you can understand this book is to understand the audience and the culture to whom it was written. Hebrews was written pastorally to a group of people who were struggling. Let's read the passage that I called us to earlier and you can see a hint about who the audience is. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 says, But recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So pause there. What do we learn about the audience here? They were beaten. Some of them were publicly shamed. They suffered. Has anybody ever taken you into a public square and beaten you? Anybody ever happened to that? Anybody? Has anybody ever had their property confiscated because they named the name of Jesus? Uh, you remember in recent times in uh, Syria and in other places in the Middle East, the group ISIS would, uh, would come and they would write the Arabic letter for N on people's doors and they would take them and they would uh, oftentimes kill the man or they would kill uh, other members of the family, but they would take the women and the children and they would drag them into slavery. And the way that you knew who was to be persecuted or treated like that was if they had an N on their door. Now, what does that N stand for? Yeah, that's right, for Nazarene. Who said that? Yeah, good job, man. It stands for Nazarene. It's the, those who followed the Nazareth, the Nazarite, the Jesus, the followers of Jesus. They were the ones who were chosen to be persecuted. We don't understand this, 
Because for us, persecution means that we might get teased. Uh, Charles preached a few weeks ago about how when he shared what his I am second bracelet meant to his boss, uh, he said, you know, I am second means that Jesus is first in my life. And he said that his boss kind of bristled at that. And it wasn't too much longer before he lost his job. That's sort of the extent of our persecution. There's probably not a person in the room who has spent time in prison because of your faith in Jesus. Correct me if I'm wrong, or raise your hand if you've ever been jailed. Not because you broke the law, uh, but because <laughs> you, uh, you could say I was a Christian and they persecuted me, but, but if you broke the law, I'm sorry to break it to you that way. That, uh, that's probably not why. We just don't understand that. If you were to be a pastor in China, they wouldn't take you seriously unless you'd been imprisoned for your faith. They would look at me as a lightweight. They would ask me uh, how many times, how many months or weeks or years of time in prison that I've spent suffering because of the gospel. We don't understand this, but we understand that the audience to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, they knew this. They had given their lives to Christ and they had experienced formerly struggles, suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes they were just partners with those who were so treated. Verse 34 continues, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. All right, so understanding the audience, as I said, is the secret to understanding the book of Hebrews. And you can see from this passage that there were a few things that you can learn about this group of people. They were suffering. They were persecuted. They were, uh, some of them were being carried off, drug into prison. Some of them, people were coming into their houses and, and taking all their possessions because they named the name of Jesus. And so in this church, imagine a church our size where uh, maybe a quarter of you spent time in prison and a quarter of you had your houses looted and a quarter of you were just uh, helping those who were suffering and others of you were losing jobs. And, and so in all those ways, this church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they have endured incredible struggles. That's the first thing you need to know about the audience to whom the Hebrews are writing. That they're struggling. They're really struggling. They're struggling in a way that now they want to kind of go backward. They want to go backward into a safer belief system. Some of them. Do you remember in Exodus when Moses rescued the Israelites and the, he took them to the edge of the Red Sea and the sea parted and they, they crossed over through it and the, the entire Egyptian army and Pharaoh were swept up. And, do you remember that story? Just nod if you're, some of you are awake. Yes, you remember that story. 
Once they got through there and they saw the fire by night and the smoke by day, and they went up on the mountain, they heard the booming voice of God, and everything they saw and experienced, the incredible, transformative, amazing presence of God Himself, shrouded in this cloud and in this fire, but through the voice and on the mountain where they received the law. In all those ways, they experienced God more than any of us probably ever will in our lifetime. But did you know that some of them said, uh, can we just go back to Egypt? It was so much better in Egypt when we were slaves and we were, um, we were in this way and we were uh, working hard labor and we were put in this position. Can, can you identify with that? That it can be uncomfortable and hard and difficult to walk with God and to walk with Jesus. And there's a temptation for us to revert backwards into things that we once knew. This was their temptation. They wanted to go back into Judaism. They wanted to go back into it. And so throughout this epistle, the author of Hebrews is encouraging Hebrew Christians, convincing them that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is more superior. You probably have one of these connect cards in the pew rack thing in front of you. Um, this is the, uh, the image that we're using for this, this sermon series, and it's a picture of uh, Mount Everest. How many of you have climbed Everest? Right? Six of you, that's great. I see your hands. Uh, this is a picture of Everest, the greatest mountain there is, right, on the earth. Um, this is just the theme of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. He's greater than, than, uh, he's greater than uh, Judaism. He's greater than anything that they could go back into. He's greater than any other belief system there is. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to show them that you could go backwards, but listen, Jesus is the best thing you're ever going to find. He's the only one who can save you. And so throughout this epistle, he does two things. He's exalting Jesus highly. But he's also giving them strict warnings. He's giving them strict warnings. So you need to understand the audience, and the audience is Hebrew Christians. Uh, you understand that if you understand the audience and the context, then you have a greater understanding of a book. You intuitively know this whenever you meet people, right? That if you can kind of relate to them on their level, on their context, in their culture, that you have a better chance. Uh, from time to time, people will find out that I'm from Oklahoma, and so because I'm from Oklahoma, they'll try to relate to me in a way that they can. Most people don't understand Oklahoma as anything but a state somewhere over there, right? <laughs> and so if they know anything about it, they'll say things like, uh, you know, you probably grew up riding bulls and uh, a rodeo guy and, um, and riding horses and, and um, maybe, you know, a cowboy and you probably had cattle, you probably know how to milk cows and and the truth is, I grew up in a college town, uh, 40,000 students at the University of Oklahoma, and I, I never ever, I don't know anything about farming, uh, I don't know anything about animals um, much anyway, but when people try to relate to me according to what they perceive as my culture, uh, that's what they'll usually try to do, and so you kind of probably do that too. If you, if you meet somebody from another culture, or if, you, um, if you're trying to communicate with somebody who maybe speaks a different language, uh, there's a few things that people typically do. Uh, they fake like they have an accent, right? <laughs> you ever, does me speak another language, and you... You meet somebody who doesn't speak that language, they'll try to fake an accent in your language 
as though you can understand. If that doesn't work, they'll speak louder or differently. Right? Have you ever been on a mission trip and somebody says something and they, you don't understand them, so they'll just speak it louder? And still, I still don't get it. I still have no idea what you're trying to say. Uh, we had a friend or a, uh, acquaintance that um, uh, whenever she walked into a store, she was looking for hand sanitizer. And so she said, do you have any hand sanitizer? And she spoke with her hands in such a way that the guy looked at her like, I speak English. I'm, this is Target. I understand you. And, um, sometimes we do different things when we try to relate to people in their culture. And, um, and so this is difficult. It's hard for us to understand people from another culture. Um, I have friends that I grew up with that are African-American, and their experience culturally is completely different from mine. Did you know that some of my friends get pulled over uh, more than 30 times a year simply because of the color of their skin? One of my friends is married to uh, a a white woman, and it happens uh, more than um, maybe five times a year in that 30 times that they're pulled over where someone will come around to his side and will ask him to come out and search him. And while they're searching him, another officer will go to the other side and ask the white woman if she's okay. Simply because it's a black man married to a white woman. You know, this is the typical experience of different cultures uh, that live right here in America. And so it's difficult sometimes for us to understand cultures and to understand cultural nuances and differences. And so one of the greatest things you can do is to listen and to be a student of culture. Just to try to understand different people's experiences and culture. Why do I say all that? I say all that because you can't understand Hebrews unless you understand the culture of the people to whom it is written. That's the secret to understanding Hebrews. There are three people that the author of Hebrews is writing to that are made up in this small cultural fellowship of Hebrew people. The first group are Hebrew believers. We've already talked about that. That These are people who heard the gospel. They heard the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the second group of people are Hebrew non-Christians who seem to be intellectually convinced but are not in any way committed by faith to Jesus. So imagine that in this room. I often say that there are as many as 25 to 35% of the people who attend this church who are not yet born-again believers, who are still trying to understand the gospel, who are still trying to understand Jesus, still trying to understand the claims of the gospel. But if you press them privately, secretly, and I said to you, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? I estimate that as many as 30% maybe would say, I really don't have that assurance. Or if I pressed them and I said, uh, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and as a substitute for your sins? And that He rose again on the third day. And do you believe that enough that you've given your life to Him, that you would follow Him, that if He said for you to, to move everything and that you're completely obedient and committed to Him, uh, there, are, there are people in this room who would it, privately, if they felt like they could trust me, and they would say, you know what, I haven't gotten to that place yet. What does it mean to be intellectually convinced about Jesus? I put the stool here, not because I'm lazy and need to sit down, but... Um, but just as an illustration, 
that a lot of times people can be intellectually convinced about Jesus in the same way that I could be intellectually convinced that this chair will hold me up. You see, I can look at this chair and, and I can reason that, uh, that it has four legs, that it has this metal bar around it, that it, it feels sturdy, I can investigate it, I can be all around this stool, but am I really trusting in this stool with all my weight? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm convinced in my mind that it will hold me. But something happens um, when my mind says, I think it will hold me, and then I, I, I actually rest in it. And when I put all my weight on this chair, something happens. I transfer my trust from myself, from my own two feet, onto this chair. Now that's a very simple illustration to, to show us that a lot of people intellectually look at Jesus and they say, I think He can... I think he was who he says he was. He taught some really cool things, and I, I like a lot of the things that he taught. And, and I, I'll agree that he probably did some miraculous things, that he healed people and he did those things. And so intellectually, I'm convinced that Jesus was um, who he said he was and that he could do those things, but I'm not ready to fully commit to him. I'm not really to, willing to stand up. and. If somebody walked in here with a gun... And they said, Gibson, do you believe that when you die, you'll go to heaven because of what Jesus did for you on the cross? And, and if, if I were to, to shoot you now, would you uh, still give your life believing that Jesus is who He says He is? And that, yeah, Some of you would just say, I'm not willing to give my life for that. That's what it means to be intellectually convinced. They're in the room. They're a part of the fellowship. They're a part of the group. But they have not given their life to Jesus in a committed way by faith. That's the second person that the author of Hebrews is writing to. That's why you get to a tricky passage like Hebrews 6 where it says, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have now fallen away, it's impossible for them to be brought back because there is no other way of salvation. When he says that those who have been enlightened, it means that they're in the room. They've tasted of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted of the gifts. They've experienced the blessings of, of being a part of the gospel community, but they've never personally experienced it. Do you know the most miserable person in the room? The one who has been to church for a long time, but, but has no understanding of grace and forgiveness and mercy and assurance of salvation. The one who is intellectually convinced, but has never given their life to Christ. Why are they miserable? Because they hear stories of how amazing Jesus is. About how their lives have been transformed. About Frank stood up here and he just said, I surrendered my life and, and I'm learning grace and forgiveness. That's transformation. And the most miserable person in the room says, I wish, I wish it worked for me, but Jesus is, he doesn't work for me. And so they're standing off to the side, intellectually convinced that Jesus could do something for them, but they've never given their life to Jesus. Now, from my perspective, I see people who yawn in church and they're habitually sleep. And I, I'm cool with that. I, I understand it's, it's hard to get winks, you know, and if you can catch a few Z's in a sermon, um, I'm kind of okay with that. It really doesn't bother me. But there are people who I've watched for years who just yawn when the Bible is read. <laughs> they, they're not in any way enthused about the truths that we sung. You know, we sung a song about how God is faithful. And just to be honest, I'll confess to you, I didn't really feel like singing. But I started to sing truth and recognize who God was and something happened in my heart. 
that, that opened me up to who Jesus is, that the truth about His faithfulness touched my heart in a way that drew me into worship. I see people from my vantage point that, that hate Scripture or yawn through it or sleep or nod their head or doze off or struggle and they can't follow or they don't sing, they don't worship and prayer is a chore. Listen, those are people who are maybe intellectually convinced, but they, they've not experienced what it means to be born again. If that's you, I just want you to understand it's okay. You're in a safe place. This is the place for you to hear the Gospel. But the prayer for you might be, Lord, help me to move from this position of intellectually convinced to a place where I'm ready to trust You with my life. To trust You that when You say that I need to serve You or ask forgiveness or confess sin or give grace or repent of something that I've long held on to, a sin habit, that I'm willing to do whatever You ask me to do. That's the second group. So the first group are convinced believers who have placed their faith in Jesus. You're going to see that sprinkled throughout. They're struggling with persecution. They're being tempted to go back to Judaism. The second group are those who are intellectually convinced, but they've never pulled the trigger and given their life to Jesus. And the third group are just Hebrews, Jewish people, who are in no way convinced at all. They're not believers at all. So there are two groups of unbelievers and one group of believers that the author of Hebrews is writing to. Now listen, if you understand that, if you understand that they're steeped in Jewish culture, if you understand that they are some believers, some intellectually convinced, and some unbelievers, then as we go through these chapters of Hebrews, we'll point out who's being addressed in this chapter, and then we'll also unpack some of the cultural things so that the message that applies to you here today uh, is, is evident, and you'll understand Hebrews in a better way. Now finally, as I close, the big point of Hebrews is that it's primarily written to believers. The big point is this. Jesus is better than what you're tempted to run from or to run to. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 says this, verse 13. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have cut out for themselves cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah says, my people have committed two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's the first evil. The second evil is they cut out for themselves a well, a cistern that can hold no water. It's got holes in it. Have you ever tried to fill a bucket that's full of holes? Of course not. You're smarter than that, right? The people of Israel that Jeremiah is talking to, they, they did two things. They, they forsook the Lord who is the fountain of living water. That is, they rejected the one who could give them real life and real water. And they ran to something that would never satisfy them. This is the warning of Hebrews. That Jesus is better than the things that you run to. You run to alcohol when you feel like you're struggling. You think if I could just drink a little bit, I'd feel better. You run to alcohol or to maybe pornography or to another relationship or to gambling or to some hobby or some sports addiction. Or In many ways, we do this all the time. 
we're not comfortable in our faith, we're struggling in some way, and so if we're experiencing any comfort, we run from the fountain of living water to something that will never satisfy us. And that's the warning of Hebrews. The, the pastor is telling these faithful believers, listen, it gets hard. It gets hard. The struggle is real. But in verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. If you endure it, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In a little while, the coming one will come and he will not delay and my righteous one will continue to live by faith. But if he shrinks back, if he turns away, my soul will have no pleasure in him. That's the warning of Hebrews. Not to run to the old ways that you used to run to, but to persist in faith. And we'll have more to say about this in the weeks to come. So Father, would you give us wisdom and insight into how we can best apply the message of Hebrews? For many of us today, we run to broken cisterns. For many of us today, we, we struggle with faith in Jesus. And so... Uh, We run to other things that we think will give us life and comfort and satisfaction and hope and joy and all those things that we deeply desire, meaning and purpose and and all the things that we want, but we can't find genuine life. Because we're looking in places that never offer it, that are broken cisterns, that have holes that will never are never meant, never designed to give us deep satisfaction. I pray, Lord Jesus, for those in the room who have never really put their faith in you, that maybe they're intellectually convinced, maybe they they like this chair, they look at it and they think, I think Jesus can do a better job of running my life than I can, but I'm not really willing to trust him with it. Would you help them to see that you are trustworthy? That you are a fountain of living water that can quench their thirst. For those believers in the room who are struggling and their endurance is difficult and they're trying to persist, but, but man, it's hard. Life is hard and trials are hard and suffering is, is taking its toll and the temptation is just to go backward, to backslide into previous ways. Would you give them grace and endurance and strength to persist in repentance? That they could continually say, Lord, I don't have it all together, but I need you today. Would you help them, Jesus, to endure, to persevere? For those who are not even intellectually convinced, but are here, would you show them that experiencing a cultural Christianity is really just a cheap substitute for genuine faith? That when songs change and cultures change, uh, that it's difficult to persist. But would you show them that, that faith in Jesus is a better way? Father, I pray that you would take this message, that you would apply it in any way you see fit today, that you would use it for your majesty and for your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.